When Hannah Ferguson landed a job with the Queensland Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions, she was just 21 years old and full of ambition and hope. She'd finished a law degree, she was doing a master's and was a self-described overachieving people pleaser on the fast track. But what she experienced was nothing like her expectations. She found herself sitting in an office cubicle for hours on end with headphones on, transcribing police recordings of interviews with victims and accused perpetrators, hearing in detail stories of abuse, trauma and violence. It transformed her perception of the crime and justice system and also the media's reporting of them. So, she left and started a media company called Cheek Media Co. And now, at 25, she's just released her first book. It's called Bite Back, Feminism, Media, Politics and Our Power to Change It All. Hannah Ferguson, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Describe what was happening to you as day after day you were transcribing these interviews, police interviews, legal interviews, while outside your cubicle the everyday monotony of office life just went on. Yeah, I mean, obviously you know when you're coming into a role like that that you will be experiencing and dealing with some traumatic material. And I think that often when we're faced with the, in the public with so much true crime content, I think we're drawn to stories in the news, um, on podcasts, and in TV series that kind of glamorises a lot of true crime in our society. But when you're actually working behind the scenes with real lives, real people's stories and dealing with what is the worst person, what is the worst moment of a person's life, it's really confronting. And to do that in such an antisocial environment where you've got that really classic corporate environment, but you're putting headphones on and not speaking to anyone for eight hours a day and just typing as fast as you can, you're dealing with the worst moments and worst parts of society but with no sort of way to deal with that afterwards, to cope with the material. And I think it's a really isolating experience and something that I just never thought was as bad or as detrimental to like mental health as it was. Yeah, so you'd finish one tape and then move on to the next and it, it might be a, a victim or it might be a perpetrator, an accused perpetrator and um, listening to that side of the story. Um, and, you know, too, for, you were offered counselling. There, there are services, but you didn't find that enough. No, and I think that often it's more about the way that we talk about the EAP services that are offered by our employers. I think a lot of the time we're having these conversations where at morning tea, it's very much a disclaimer. It's very much something that's thrown in as like a, oh, and if you need it. And my thing about that is when you do try to access those services, a lot of the time it's two free telephone sessions and then you're on your own kid. And for me, when we consider how much it costs to access mental health services in this country, it's not actually accessible for everyone. And I think that as much as the service might be offered, the extent to which it's provided versus what we need, is there's a big gap there. And so, yes, it was dealing with confronting material and as much as you feel like there is that number you can call there's a gap between actually accessing it and what it can provide and how normal that is in your workplace, how accepted that is as well, socially. So there was the emotional, psychological impact of this, but there was also the the more abstract Im change it had on you, which is the way you saw not just the legal system that you'd studied and wanted to study for so long, but the way what happened in it was portrayed in the media. 
Absolutely. And I think that there is this gap and we see statistics every day. We see headlines, but we don't really consider the reality. And I think that what much of the Australian public tends to do, myself included, is distance ourselves because it's really confronting to think of that happening next door, to think of that happening to someone on your street. But when we do think about the statistics of how many women are murdered by an intimate partner in this country every year, we know that the reality is that could be happening in our suburb. And as much as, much as it's much easier to disengage and to withdraw from the hard-hitting news and the headlines we're reading, we need to face the reality in order to change. We need to have hard conversations and we need to close the gap between what the media is reporting and what our public understanding is. That's a hard a hard conversation to be had and a hard thing to accept, but it's so necessary if we want to reduce violence and crime in our communities. So you literally took this into your own hands. You decided that you'd start being the change, as we say now. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I grew up in a rural town in New South Wales. I went to a, you know, quite a conservative Catholic school and my parents are quite conservative. I was never really in the media. Journalism was never going to be my thing. I was doing a law degree. I had no intentions of going into the media. In fact, you thought you might make it all the way to the top of the legal profession and even into politics. Oh, I still aspire to be the Prime Minister. Quite frankly, that's on the list. But, I mean, I don't limit myself. I truly think that, you know, my generation, like I'm, I'm part of Generation Z and as much as I think that young people don't feel engaged or part of the political and legal conversations or part of the media landscape a lot of the time, I was determined to make a difference and do something that younger me needed, do something that 15 or 16-year-old me would have benefited from. And it, the intention literally was to start writing opinion pieces that were left-wing, feminist and transparent about those things that rebalanced the Murdoch media and offered a different perspective that I wasn't seeing anywhere else. So describe Cheek Media and the way the content is delivered. Clearly it's an online thing. Yeah, it's social first. So Instagram's the major platform. I think Cheek now has something like 87 or 88,000 followers. Um, Started in November of 2020. And the intention in the beginning between myself and my two co-founders was that we were trying to build something that engaged young people in politics like we'd never seen before, but through a left-wing feminist lens. It was always going to be opinion. We're not claiming to break the news. It was always about being transparent and actually saying, this is my view, this is where it comes from, this is why you don't have to agree with me, but I want you to think about it. And it's kind of developed into this thing where I thought it was going to be for people that looked like me and were my age and were my demographic, and it's something entirely different. Much of the Cheek audience is actually, my, one of my favourite followers is an 89-year-old grandmother <laughs> right. of 27. She's a paying subscriber. She's dedicated. A lot of the older men who are retired pay are paying subscribers to Cheek because they've never seen media like this before and they're on social media and they want to keep up with their children and grandchildren. So the actual average age is something like 35 or 37 on Cheek. So as much as it started off as like a young person's platform, it kind of transformed into something else, which is an audience of people that have taken to something that's trying to do media differently and being honest about it. So you've got a very clear agenda. Yeah. Do you have to shoehorn that into stories at all? Like do you start with, you know, the celebrity of the day and the, you know, tittle-tattle or what are the delivery systems of content for your message? Yeah, so I think that, you know, it's not actually that much celebrity content. It's really um, political and cultural conversations. So, I mean, the biggest piece at the moment is the voice referendum and it's something like 15 thousand followers I've you know grown in the last two months just writing on the voice referendum because I'm struggling to find resources in the media that are actually clear and I think that people just want to be delivered the news in a simplistic way and spoken to as equals so I'm transparent about my agenda I will say how I'm voting and I will say why I will say I don't want you to vote like me I don't want you to think like me but I want to present the facts but I also want to 
be transparent and announce how I'm voting so I'm disclaiming that, not pretending to shield myself from the reality of how I feel and what I think. And do you have comments? Yes, the comments are severe. Sometimes I truly believe that a robust comment section can be more substantial and beneficial than the content itself. Cheek is all about the two-way conversation as much as it can be. I do regular question boxes and feedback boxes with followers where they can ask any question about anything they've read in the media that week, anything they've engaged with in politics, and I'll answer questions about, okay, here's the story, but here's what you need to know about it. And I'll try and always unpack because I think that a lot of what we're seeing currently is people don't understand the language they're being presented with and they feel like they're being kept at an arm's length and they disengage and withdraw instead of stepping up and Googling the masthead, Googling the definition of that word. And so I'm trying to take the pretentious language and bring it back to really simple, accessible information for people. Yeah, you're quite critical of, of some of the echo chambers that exist within feminism. And in fact, you say here, some streams of feminism preach only to the converted and reinforce the mainstream narrative that progress that progressive spaces are exclusively for women who know all of the most up-to-date terminology, while others sit in glass towers telling you that you're not you're just not radical enough if you don't have a strong grasp of the history of feminist theory and know what the Bechdel test is. Now, I do happen to know what the Bechdel test is. That's um, you know, the comedian and comic writer Alison Bechdel created it. It's if a film doesn't have two women with names talking to each other, it doesn't pass. That's About something other than a man. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so many films fail. It's like really <laughs> concerning. But, and that's the fun bit. But describe the, the more serious part of, of what you're saying there, that it's difficult. Are you saying that, that there are these existing conversations that are highly privileged and hard for some women to enter? Absolutely. And I think that feminism has a real issue with classism um, and I and also with whiteness. I think that there is a very significant stream of feminism at the moment, which is white women trying to increase their own privilege, but locking the door behind them. And that's not feminism, right? You know, intersectional views of feminism, which try to improve the experience of all women. And we're not one homogenous group and we all have different experiences that can increase and interlock marginalisation, right, and discrimination. For me, my take is that, especially as someone who did have a quite a conservative upbringing and was not a feminist, right, until, you know, a few years ago when I was 18, 19, entering university, I felt when I was trying to engage with feminist spaces that if I didn't know the word, if I hadn't been to the seminar, if I hadn't read this book, I just wasn't good enough and I just wasn't left-wing enough to be in that space. And so as much as I am saying I'm left-wing, I'm progressive, I'm a feminist, I'm trying to do it differently because I think that the left has some serious issues with the way that we demonise people and shame people and critique people who aren't keeping up with pace. And when you've got some people who are just for the first time learning what consent is and learning what a healthy relationship looks like, to be presented with ideas like prison abolition is quite confronting. And I don't think that if you're not up with all of these ideas and terms and ideologies that you're not good enough to be here. For me, it's about having the conversation and saying there's a difference between someone who is hateful or bigoted and someone who's uninformed or maybe just doesn't know the language yet. And so I'm all about having the conversation and reopening that dialogue and saying, you don't have to know it all, but you have to be open to learning. Hannah Ferguson is with us. She's the author of Bite Back, Feminism, Media, Politics and Our Power to Change It All. She's also the co-founder of Cheek Media Co., 
What about consensus in feminist conversation, discourse, debate? I'm not going to identify what side of this argument I was on, but I was at dinner with um, some girlfriends of mine not so long ago and there was a disagreement about what happened when Spain won the Women's World Cup. Yep. And, uh, you know, it was quite, it was quite heated. Uh-huh. Is there within many feminist conversations a emphasis on consensus? I think that there is power in having a strong stance and having a group of people that agree and therefore it makes the argument stronger. But the reality is that we are human and we're not going to agree and we are going to have a variety of opinions. And I think that to expect uniformity is outrageous because we don't expect it from any other group, right? And I think we're seeing that sort of conversation in the referendum at the moment between, you know, First Nations voices that are disagreeing. You know, why would we expect uniformity, right? It's not fair. Um, For me, it's interesting because I think what it always comes back to is I'm always interested to hear the why, but I'm less interested in, you know, what someone perceives as to, I'm assuming you're referring to the kiss with the Spanish Football Federation. That's right, yeah. Yeah. There is this element where I want to know your take, but I actually am more interested in what lies beneath that. Is what lies beneath that that someone, you know, your partner has done that to you before and you you feel that you have to accept that behaviour, otherwise you have to examine something else within yourself? Or is it because you don't actually understand the definition of consent? Or did, you know, it, I think I'm more interested in the context to your experience that's defined that answer. I'm more interested in getting beneath the surface level argument and saying, like, what has shaped your views to this point? What has made you believe that that behaviour is okay? You don't need to agree with me, but I want you to be able to sit and think, what's the conditioning, what's the social perception and why do I feel this way? Mm -hmm. And articulate that. Actually, in your book, you do have uh, a chapter addressing internalised misogyny, which is about exactly what you're talking about. You also have one called the M word. What is the role of men in the feminist movement? Gee, can you summarise that in about, you know, 100 words or less? Yeah, I think (laughs) that the thing is that men don't feel welcome in feminist spaces and I want to challenge that too because if we're going to make change, they have to be invited to the conversation and they have to be the change makers. Are they interested? I don't think so right now. I think a lot of men aren't, to be quite frank, and that's my interest area is how do I get them interested because until we do that, we're not going anywhere is truly my view. For me, I think that feminists, I think that a lot of men think that feminism is asking them to give up something and to stand and hold posters with us. I'm actually more interested in what men do when no women are around. I'm truly, I'm more interested in what men say to their guy friends when something awful happens. I'm more interested in what they do for themselves to make themselves better. I was just thinking about them doing boring things like looking at magazines full of, <laughs> full of motorcycles, but you're talking about something different. The conversations they have yes. in change rooms, after sport or exactly. whatever. Yeah, I see. Okay. You also have a chapter uh, on sex and relationships and me too, because I mean, this is a serious book, but it's also very emotional and kind of fun yeah. as well. So what's your message to the generations that you're clearly talking to, but the ones that you t- the one that you're targeting, which I imagine is the younger one? Yeah, I think that there's a conversation with Me Too movement at the moment, which sees everyone either feeling like they're terrified of being accused or they're, the reality is they're going to be a victim. You know, I think that that's kind of the social perception between men and women at the moment. And what I want to ask is how we go back to the start and how we approach conversations with young people about their relationship with sex and intimacy and consent and going beyond the consent messaging, which is just a simple yes or no affirmative consent and saying, what is your relationship with sex? What do you think? What do you feel? And what are the ethics of intimacy? I want us to step up and start having more sophisticated conversations about love, relationships and our bodies. I'm interested just finally that you haven't given away the idea of, you know, politics 
politics at some point. Is this platform that you've created, Cheek Media, and also using a book like the one you've just published, the way to do that now? Is this how you create a conversation, a following, a career, a political career these days? I actually don't think about that as uh, I've never thought that Cheek was my building blocks to a political career, but I think that the, and also I never expected the success that I've had. I never expected to gain the following that I have, but I obviously knew that it was something I would have liked to have seen. So I knew it had legs sort of thing. For me now, I am seeing the value in what I'm doing and I'm seeing the value in my voice and it actually has pushed me to be more and more political and to be more and more interested in pursuing that career. But I don't have that motive yet. It's long-term. But, of course, it shapes everything. Well, look, I hate to say it, but you are just 25. <laughs> <laughs> Life's very long, Hannah. There could all, be, all kinds of things could be coming down the tubes. Hey, great to meet you and uh, thanks for talking with us. Thank you so much for having me. Hannah Ferguson, the book is called Bite Back, Feminism, Media, Politics and Our Power to Change It All. And you can also check out Cheek Media. You can find that online or via your favourite socials. And she also has a podcast called Big Small Talk. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.